But see, when I said, give me a short introduction, I didn't mean that short. <laughs> You've already had your time. I know. <laughs> Not really. He's making sure we have the time. <laughs> well, I do want to thank Steve for the invitation to be here tonight and for all the work he does with this event. And I thank Cynthia for her kind words earlier. And I want to thank the organization for inviting me to be here tonight. And I really want to thank the kitchen staff. That was a great time. I want to thank I also want to thank a special person, Miss Betty Rowland, my wife of 36 years. 36 years. Yeah, yeah. Trinity Avenue Presbyterian Church, not too far from here, 36 years ago. Like a lot of you, you know, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be where you are in life without your spouse. And I wouldn't be here tonight without Betty, so I, I just have one question. <laughs> I'm sorry our children weren't able to be here tonight. Our, our son Paul has been working with the homeless at the Raleigh Rescue Mission using that social work degree. And our daughter Sarah, she's home working on her thesis in environmental sciences. And Dad keeps saying, get done, get done. <laughs> she said, it's the first semester. Well, sometimes they're having supper together tonight, but sometimes they'll, they'll settle that annual debate they have. What to get Dad for Father's Day? <laughs> He'll say this, she'll say that, this, that, this, that, always ends in a tie. <laughs> well, Steve, Steve told you I'm a psychologist by training, and, and you know that psychologists like to predict behavior. So let me predict five things you will not hear tomorrow on Father's Day. I had a top ten list, but Steve said, make it move, make it move. <laughs> Here, honey, you take the remote control. <laughs> you won't hear Dad say, no need to rush through college, son, just relax and take a couple of extra years to enjoy yourself. <laughs> you won't hear Dad say, you know, I've noticed that the crowd you've been hanging out with lately, they have kind of brusque, surly attitude. I like that. <laughs> you won't hear Dad say, how come you want to go get a job? I make plenty of money with <laughs> <laughs> And another one thing you will not hear tomorrow is, what do I want for Father's Day? Oh, nothing. I don't need a present. <laughs> okay, we say it, but we don't mean it. <laughs> Well, fatherhood, parenthood, is, it's one of life's great adventures. I remember I remember the first time we took our, our little son, Paul III, to the doctor, and, and he said, oh, you have a cute baby. And baby mama said, oh, you know, she had that proud response. And I, I'm kind of skeptical, so I said, I bet you say that to all the parents. He said, no, I only say that to the ones who have a really cute baby. So, you know, I had to ask, what did you say to the others?
once in a while I get to ask, ask the children a question, you know. One time we were talking about one of the Ten Commandments is honor thy father and thy mother. So I asked this little girl, or I asked the group actually, is there a commandment that teaches us how to treat our brothers and sisters? And one little girl holds up her hand, I point to her, and she said, thou shalt not kill. <laughs> <laughs> about being legally blind all 69 years, all my life. Some of what I'll say is based on experience. You know, experience is a wonderful thing. It helps you recognize a mistake the next time you make it. <laughs> Some of it's based on education. Well, you know the difference. Education is what you get when you read the fine print. And experience is what you get when you don't. <laughs> Some of what I'm going to say may be based on statistics. You know, there are two kinds of statistics. Those you look up and those you make up. <laughs> Fake news, huh? <laughs> well, one time I was, I was working with a fella and uh, he asked me, what? Roland, why do all you psychologists answer a question with another question? You know what I said? Oh, do I do that? Preparing <laughs> 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 for this event, I asked myself some questions. The first question was, one of the biggest challenges you've had in terms of being legally blind, and I have to say for me, the biggest challenges have been more social, not visual, so much. Because people see behavior that's different as reflecting intelligence or personality rather than as a result of some physical difference. When I don't see something, it's often attributed to inattention or laziness or dim-wittedness, though that may be because of appearance, I don't know. <laughs> Rarely does someone seem to think, maybe this guy has a vision problem and sees differently than I do. People don't think that way. Well, and because generally I make pretty efficient use of the deficient I have, vision I do have, and because I figured out lots of workarounds, and you know, there are a lot of vision impaired people here that know zillions of workarounds that let you get past some of those awkward situations. Well, so I end up being perceived as having better vision than I do, especially when I pull up my camera and take pictures. Well, that camera sees a lot better than I do. <laughs> Hold it up close. Well, people with visual impairments or other disabilities are often treated as somehow less able than their peers, and that's a frequent frustration. On the other hand, it's real good preparation for when people decide you're getting old. <laughs> you know, when they raise you, now, Dr. Rowland, we're going to do this. Just like, the, just like they, when they found out when I was little that you've got a vision problem. People all of a sudden talk loud and talk like they're talking to a child. And no, that's not the way. <laughs> well, my limited color vision caused some practical problems. So to match clothes, I use a trusted consultant. She's that one lady sitting over there. And for that matter, in cooking or, or baking, I, I either rely on my spouse's good color vision, those brown or or a really good kitchen timer. Those visual aids they're selling downstairs are useful. There are a variety of uh, visual displays that present vision challenges to me. You know, I'll say, baby, is this alarm clock on? 
Yes, it's got a bright red. I don't see red. It's not a color I see. Um, or greeting cards. Or sometimes my children say, Houston's are in the dark color of the night. Warriors are wearing the, the light color or whatever. Because I don't see the colors necessarily. I just know home and court for the right team. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, another question people ask is, doesn't it just break your heart? Break your heart not to see rainbows. Well, all leaf colors and a lot of other colors. Well, sometimes people feel bad about my not being able to experience full color view of the world, but then they shrug it off, say, well, I guess you can't miss what you didn't have. Well, they're wrong both times. You can miss what you don't have, and I'm curious about that. Only thing is, I ever saw red, how would I know what it was? I've never seen it before. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like to me. <laughs> but you can miss things you never had. If you don't think so, ask any teenager who didn't get a driving license when they turned 16. When all their peers, most of their buddies did. You can miss it a lot. Well, another question I thought I'd ask myself, tell us a story about your being legally blind as a child. Well, I was about fifth grade. My mother mentioned, oh, I'm going to have to go to school and tell your teacher about your bad eyes. That's what they talked in the 50s. Now we say about your severe visual impairment. <laughs> Differently able. Well, I surprised her though. I surprised myself. I said, no, that's my job. And from then on, I did. I, would learn, I learned to be a teacher, to tell my teachers and later professors and later graduate school professors to explain about my vision and what they needed to do because teachers want to be in charge. They want to be responsive to their students' needs. And if, They've never met anybody with my vision, so I needed to let them know what they needed to do or not do. You know, yes, I've been to the eye doctor. I've seen the best ophthalmologist. I've got the best glasses they can give me. No, they can't fix it. Not yet. And to say, if I have a problem, I will tell you what I need. <laughs> so that, if that's the truth. Well, I often ran into that with, uh, in my work with services for the blind. There were lots of kids, they said, I tell my teachers that, and they don't believe me. So I'd give them a card, or I'd say, get your counselor's card, and, and you get the teacher to call them, because sometimes what it seems like a reasonable request, if you're blind or vision impaired, it seems like you're pulling my leg to a teacher who's had a lot of people pull their leg. <laughs> well, Somebody said, well, so your, your vision impaired life's been frustration-free. Well, no. Because <laughs> when I was a child, we didn't have any. We didn't have any laws about reasonable accommodations. We didn't have any mainstream. We didn't have any computers. So I wasn't mainstream. I was more up the creek, you might say. <laughs> <laughs> Blackboards and those, you know, those little spirit duplicator sheets. Anybody in here old enough to remember those? They smell funny and you can barely read them. I'm the best copy. And most of the standardized testing I did was in tiny print and bright light, bad situation for me. Except the SAT, I got that in large print. But under very bad lighting. Well, 
And one time, one time I worked a summer job and I really liked it, so I applied the next year, and guess what? They wouldn't let me. Oh, those are all filled. I found that one. They told somebody who knew me that, you know, he had the whole thing so close to his eyes, he was ruined in his eyes, we wouldn't hire. So I ended up working in a warehouse instead of working in the newspaper I wanted to work in. Sometimes people try to protect you when they're getting your what? Well, the big issue is driving. Not having a driving license was a big hassle in high school and in college and in graduate school. And it still is. <laughs> it's a hassle. But I figured out a long time ago, it takes planning, it takes having backup plans, but you can get where you want to go if you really want to get there. Although, Sometimes I feel like one of those comedians, you know, remember Kenny Young, we used to say, oh, get no respect. I've owned nine, I bought nine cars. But I couldn't legally drive any of them, or safely. <laughs> but even my own family said, well, that's Davey's car, and that's Sarah's car, and that, you know, I don't get any of them. <laughs> <laughs> there was a blues guy, anybody ever heard of Ride Cooter? He had a wonderful song I love, and I won't sing it now, but he said, every woman I know crazy about an automobile. Every woman I know crazy about an automobile. And here I am sitting on nothing but rubber heel. <laughs> See, I'm in no danger of being in the town lady. <laughs> well, the truth is, I can, I can drive. You know, they have these little bumper cars you get in the state. <laughs> it's the usual route to independence, but the real key to independence is in your heart, in your wanting to be independent. So what has legal blindness taught me about life? Well, one is other people, of course, don't see things the same way. And even people who have the same diagnosis don't quite have the same acuity or the same color or the same challenges. Vision problems basically cause practical problems. And most practical problems have practical solutions or workarounds. There's just a whole lot to be said for persistence about not giving up too easily. I'm conducting a funeral of a friend Lynn, who was visually impaired that next week, and she her favorite saying was most meet all challenges with determination and humor. If you can do that, you can handle most of the challenges in life. A major adaptive skill is learning to be a teacher. I teach you with diplomacy. You know what diplomacy is? It's a skill that if you used tact, you wouldn't have been in that situation in the first place. <laughs> and you know what tact is? Tact, tact is that skill that lets you tell a person that they have a hole in their head, but lets them hear that you told them you are open-minded. <laughs> I think it helps to have two or three times a level of explanation for your vision. Well, most people, it's none of their business. I don't tell them anything. Some people, something very particular, you know, I might tell a clerk of the store, I'm vision impaired, can you tell me what this price is or tag says? Or tell me what color this shirt is or, you know, a specific thing. And then with a small group of friends and family, give a plain English explanation. 
but don't expect them to remember. People who see everything in great detail and full color, great distances, they just cannot comprehend. What do you mean pink looks gray or blue? That just doesn't make any sense to most people. Basically, our disability is one that we call a low incidence event. So most of the world is not gonna accommodate us or help us in the way we need. We have to be self-advocates and, and help tell people what we need. Every time I go vote, they have one of those visual techs sitting out to vote, and I say, nobody in there right now would vote on that, and they say, why? I said, there's no privacy. You show the whole room your ballot in large print. I don't want them to know who I'm voting for. So we, we get them to turn it around. They haven't thought of that. So you have to advocate for yourself and, and for your peers. Well, the other thing I'd say is that there's no device that will substitute the human eye. We've seen some marvelous technology in recent years, and especially some of those things they're showing downstairs in the, in the exhibit. It's amazing what, what technology has come up with, but nothing really substitutes the human eye. But you find tools that work for you. I use a lot of different things. And if anybody has a vision problem like mine, I'll be glad to tell you about them later. <laughs> well, I have one last tip for you on the tip group. That is to listen to Eleanor Roosevelt said, who said, you wouldn't worry so much about what other people think of you if you realize how seldom they do. <laughs> <laughs> a long time ago, I was embarrassed to read in front of other people, and then I kind of realized, you know, if you know me and like me, then, then you understand, and if, and if you don't know me or don't like me, why do I care? It helps to, to let family down to it, and they have an uncle kept saying in deer season, oh, oh, go hunt with me, go hunt with me, you know, what's something you ask a friend to do, your son to do, it's an honor. And he just wouldn't take no for an answer. Finally, I said, let me put it this way, Jack. I can see the shoot. I just can't see the aim. <laughs> <laughs> so he asked me, he asked me to do other things. <laughs> well, finally, let me tell you about him. There's an old couple, old couple sitting in their rocking chairs. It's at the end of the day, and the sun sinks low, like soon now. The crepuscular time of day, they call it. It's a time you can get a little sentimental and reminiscing, think about things. And as they sit and they rock, the wife looks sweetly at her husband and so softly says, Honey, I'm so proud of you. But he whips around and says, I'm tired of you too. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes, what gets said is not what gets heard. <laughs> but you guys have been great tonight, so thank you. God bless you. Bless all. Good luck to all the contestants tonight. And y'all have a great night.
wasn't that keynote address outstanding. <laughs> Well, that concludes our program for the day.